0: Welcome to episode 39 of District of Conservation. We are just days away from independence, so I wanted to offer some brief remarks as to what is trending in the outdoor industry, outdoor policy, hunting, fishing, shooting sports, and the like. I'm grateful to Real Camel Girl for sponsoring the podcast day in and day out since the beginning, since September of last year. If you want to learn more about them, go to realcamelgirl.com and connect with them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Last week, I had the opportunity to finally interview an Interior Secretary of the United States, and that is the newly sworn in, newly put in place, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, who previously served as Deputy Interior Secretary when Ryan Zinke was at the Post just up until late last year. Without giving too many details, because I want you guys to read my piece that I'm going to do in Sporting Classics, and watch a video I have a little bit about what our conversation entailed in a tour of the agency, here's what I wanted to offer you guys as a little glimpse into the interview. Bernhardt is a very serious policy wonk. He is what many, I think, would call a citizen conservationist. Uh, He really does have conservation at the forefront of his thinking. That's what I gathered from speaking with him. He was very polite, but not overbearing, but very serious with the work that he's doing. He has a pretty extensive background in interior affairs, having worked for the agency under the Bush administration in numerous posts. He was also a board member for the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries. And prior to us doing an interview, he asked me a little bit about how my impressions were of the Elkert. So that was really cool to talk about and and break the ice with, with him. And we talked about a whole host of issues ranging from some of his first secretarial orders to his thinking in terms of determining policy for the agency, as it relates to the North American model of wildlife conservation with respect to advancing hunting and fishing policy. And I think you're going to like what his responses were. A lot of people are very quick to paint him as this oil and gas industry blowhard bureaucrat. They, they really do paint him in such a negative light. And I'm not apologizing for his policy positions or his previous stances in life in terms of his career. But I think people often make quick judgments about someone who works for a particular administration, especially if they're Republican. And I think that's really wrong. And since being put into the position, secretary Bernhardt has actually won over a few groups that were kind of skeptical of, The Trump administration's agenda items or that were more critical of it and he's kind of curried their favor so it's interesting that he has pretty widespread support across different conservation hunting fishing groups out there but we talked about a whole range of things and I think you're gonna like what he had to say I asked him I didn't give him softball questions but I I wanted him to get to the bottom of certain things so in the written format when that comes out in Sporting Classics, hopefully I'm aiming for sometime in the next week or two. But I think you're going to like what he had to say. I'm going to try to make it as interesting as possible with my way of with words and also uh, channeling his thoughts as clearly as possible. So stay on the lookout for that. And I'll also have him as my third subject for Conservation Nation with Fact, the video series that I do. So stay tuned for my conversation with Secretary Bernhardt. And if you can, when you see any of those pieces come out, be sure to share them. I would greatly appreciate that when that time comes. But you'll see that from me on my newsletter or my social media feeds as to when that comes out. Is there too much open space, public lands in particular, that are open to hunters? One article in the Hartford Courier, which is Connecticut's one of Connecticut's major state papers, has an op-ed out there in the op-ed section claiming the following. Too much open space in Connecticut is open to hunters. That should change. In this op-ed written by a Fran Silverman, who is affiliated with an animal rights activist group, they argue that although hunters are 1% of the population, too much of the land Accommodates their lifestyle. 64% in particular accommodates their lifestyle or is open to hunting opportunities. Without reading too much into it, I'll read a few excerpts of it, but I wanted to first have a little bit of a monologue as to what my contention with this piece is. But throughout this piece, this individual makes the argument that hunting access should be apportioned or allotted according to the number of percent of hunters that partake in it. So she proposes that 1% of public lands in Connecticut should be open to public lands for hunting opportunities. That is completely contrary to the North American model of wildlife conservation and the current conservation practices in place. As you guys very well know, and as I've indicated here on the podcast and in my writing, hunters and anglers pay upwards of 60% of conservation dollars through excise taxes collected on specific goods, specifically licenses, firearms, fishing tackle, archery equipment, and the like. When those excise taxes are collected by the Department of Interior, specifically 10 and 11 percent for certain products those that 10 and 11 percent collected from certain firearms and equipment materials is collected by the department of interior from which it later redistributes it back to the state wildlife agencies to use for habitat restoration projects and wildlife conservation restoration efforts This system has been in place since the Pittman-Robertson Act, which this is all derived from, was put into place in 1937. And it's in need of some reform. I won't get so much into the details. I've written about it extensively. You can Google about it. But this law was put into place because much of the resource, wildlife, was depleted in the late 1800s. Hunters decided then and there at that time frame, They would be the primary stewards or the lead stewards of trying to rectify the problem of wildlife being diminished out there. So hunters and anglers have helped restore elk, turkeys, bear, waterfowl, white-tailed deer, and all these different species. Having learned from past mistakes of their forebears or the people who came out, hunted everything, monopolized hunting or commercialized hunting, I should say and learn from the mistakes of their forebearers and put into place this law and these ethics so that they could be responsible. And a lot of people do recreate on public lands that's n- n- that shouldn't be diminished, of course, but they don't pay into the system. That's an uh, inconvenient truth that many don't want to admit, but hunters and anglers primarily pay into the system. And of course, they should have every right to dictate the policies and, and things that happen. And with this op-ed, it claims this, Um, they're celebrating and talking about more land has been acquired by the state of Connecticut, and it's all good and dandy, but the problem with that is this, they say, but there is bad news with this land acquiring. While the majority of taxpayers in Connecticut are not hunters, less than 1% of Connecticut residents are licensed firearm hunters, 64% of the new land the state has acquired between 2014 and 2018 allows hunting. She complains further that already almost all of the state's 32 state forests are open to hunters. That's a startling number considering the amount of residents seeking licenses for firearms hunting in the state has been steadily declining from 15,353 in 1986 to just over 10,000 in 2016, a 35% decrease. That means resident firearms hunters represent just 1.3% of the state's population. And she proceeds further. She cites the survey from the Fish and Wildlife Service, highlighting the diminishing numbers of hunting participants. And she is therefore saying that, meanwhile, the amount of people participating in wildlife watching activities is skyrocketing. More than 86 million people participated in activities such as observing, feeding, and photographing wildlife. And their expenditures increased 28% from 2011 to $76 Seventy-six billion in 2016. In Connecticut, about one third of residents participate in wildlife watching activities. That's 1.2 million people who bring in 900 million in revenues to the state. Yet the preferences of the majority wildlife watchers, who enjoy seeing animals in their natural habitats, are sidelined to advance the agenda of a tiny percent of hunters who acquire licenses through the state's environmental protection agency. And this is it. Goes on and on and on. And it talks about that wildlife are intentionally killed each year, uh, and that residents do a lot, and that it's problematic that DEEP not only issues permits to license hunters for seasonal hunting of coyotes, fox, deer, migratory birds, pheasants, ducks, and other waterfowl, it issues permits to kill wildlife deemed problematic by owners and renters of agricultural lands. It also adds, permits are also issued to kill wildlife at airports and trout hatcheries, and state officials admit these permits are rarely declining. And it further goes on to say, hunters have enough land as it is, and their endeavors are not without risk. There have been 10 hunting related fatalities and 118 injuries in Connecticut since 1982. As the state acquires new open space and deep works with partners on the Connecticut Forest Action Plan 2020, it's time to recognize it's simply counterintuitive to set aside so much land to cater to a minuscule number of hunters. It's time to flip these figures and start setting the majority of it aside for wildlife watchers and wildlife who are already facing challenges from habitat encroachment and decline and climate change. What this person fails to understand, and Fran Silverman uh, is a communications director with the Friends of Animals, an international nonprofit wildlife advocacy group based in Connecticut. The problem with Miss Silverman's article is this. She does not understand, again, as I mentioned earlier, what entails the North American model of... Of wildlife conservation a lot of these wildlife watchers while well-intentioned do not normally contribute and do not contribute the majority of conservation funding through excise taxes they don't pay an excise tax through their wildlife watching activities they may donate to groups that do in turn support conservation efforts privately and that's great i support that but their dollars do not speak volumes for conservation projects whatsoever and to deny that fact that's it, that's simply glossed over and ignored in this article and then say, well, you have to decrease hunting acres or hunting access because they're only a minuscule uh, population set of, of Connecticut. That is what is completely wrong with this attitude. She gives no thanks to the hunters who are actually helping to restore conservation efforts, habitat and wildlife restoration efforts in Connecticut, which does have probably one of the worst participation numbers in the country. Connecticut hunters have to worry with people like this. And she's free to write this op-ed. No one is challenging her to write this op-ed. I'm all for free speech. But the idea is that she's proposing that you diminish the allotment of public lands available for hunting, especially while ignoring the ethical conservation practices in place in this country, will set a dangerous precedent. And you're going to see more people have similar attitudes like this. They're going to push forth bills. We saw a record number of anti-hunting legislation Considered and voted on and implemented all across the United States this past legislative session in states like New Mexico, New York, Oregon, and other interesting states that have flipped politically from one party to another, especially from being pro-hunting to anti-hunting. And it's sad that it is divided along those political lines, but that's just the reality of things now in politics, unfortunately. But when it shifted from a pro-hunting majority to an anti-hunting majority, it also reflected the political attitudes there. But There already is a shortage of access, hunting land access here on the East Coast. I cannot stress that enough. There are groups like in organizations like Outdoor Access, which is a Airbnb type land leasing property program that does a great job of remedying private land access for hunting and fishing opportunities. People are trying to open up more public lands opportunities for hunting and fishing all across the East Coast. They're trying to do that here in Virginia with wildlife management areas and different states. But if efforts like this succeed or if hunting lands are not apportioned uh, according to funding rather than participation, that's going to hurt the sport very much. And we already have to deal with declining numbers. We don't need end attacks from individuals like this and, and entities like this. We don't need them to alter the course of conservation precedents like they are trying to do. So be weary of this. Be Write op-eds in response to this. If you're in Connecticut, write a response. Or if you see something like this appear in your state, write a response, a cogent response, calm response, and let your voice be heard and start to organize efforts, especially if this becomes law or if this becomes potential legislation that could be considered and molded and later voted on and signed into law. So, yeah, that's uh, problematic. I kind of wanted to get some thoughts out there on that, uh, but it's a pretty... Pretty interesting, dangerous thought being out there. So this is what we have to worry about with people who want to attack the lifestyle and go after it through trying to say that because such a few percent of people hunt in the state, they don't need so much of land. This is very arrogant and this is very dangerous for the North American model of wildlife conservation. A final thing I wanted to discuss before we head into Independence Day is you can now purchase a 2019 to 2020 hunting season duck stamp which has been made available by the fish and wildlife service for purchase if you are so inclined as you guys very well know if you go duck hunting and i myself am new to it but i've gone on one occasion so far but when you go hunting you have to buy a federal duck stamp alongside your state's uh duck hunting license waterfall license as well but if you want to buy the duck stamp ahead of time and get it sent to you before season starts. It's a perfect occasion to do it now. I'm going to include the link in the show notes from whence you can purchase one for your liking. If you are a hunter or if you're not and you just like to collect it, that's great too. The more the merrier because that goes back to, again, wildlife and habitat restoration efforts. That's what all of this stuff does. And many people do not understand that we have to be patient with people, especially those who are very antagonistic and explain it to them that this is what happens. This is the thing that has been set into place for many years. There's precedent for it. You have to accept that hunters play a big role, much like anglers, in conservation efforts in this country. And denying that would be a foolish mistake. And through efforts like duck stamps, licenses, excise taxes, collected on all this great stuff, that's what goes back to conservation funding. And the challenge that we have in the industry is finding people to make up for the losses that have been occurring gradually over the years. And again, having op-eds like that or suffering blows to recruitment efforts will be a huge detriment to our efforts. So if you want to support hunting, bring in someone new mentor someone. If you find more city dwellers like me who are new to hunting or who are interested in hunting, take them hunting, take them under your wing and mentor them because that's how you're going to get people the best opportunity for bringing in new hunters, is city dwellers who are open-minded. And there's, I think the majority of this country is not really set in their ways when it comes to hunting and they're open-minded. So there's a huge opportunity and you want to get the millennial quarter of the population interested. And I think there are some opportunities to do that. And we'll discuss that in a future podcast, but get a duck stamp if you haven't already. And support conservation through that thank you for listening to today's episode i hope you liked it if you're new here i would appreciate some feedback send me a message leave a review subscribe on apple or other supporting platforms i would love your take as to what your thoughts are on this i haven't had any interviews recently just because i've been so busy and i have a backlog of client work and writing to do, but I will be getting guests on. I want to try to bring on some people who worked in the forest service and other kind of unconventional outlets in the hunting industry, outdoor industry at large. There are some interesting folks across forestry, trapping, and the like. So we're going to try to bring them on the podcast in the coming weeks. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat. And again, I would appreciate any feedback, any subscribes, comments and things of that sort uh, for the podcast. The more downloads we get, the better traction we have overall on the podcast. Have a great Independence Day. Happy 243 years to America, the best place on earth. Hope you guys are fishing then or enjoying time with your family. Have a good week. And until next week when episode 40 hits, thank you. Bye.